Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How long the heavy bombardment of Gaza continues probably depends on how much pressure is put on Israel by allies. And by allies, I mean the US. Joe Biden himself is under pressure from quite a surprising constituency, Gen Z voters. A new poll for the New York Times suggests a full three quarters of 18 to 29 year olds don't support Biden's stance on the war, his support for Israel. Oddly, many are turning to Trump instead, despite being left leaning. In July, American Gen Z voters backed Biden over Trump by 10 percentage points. But now, 10 weeks into this conflict, Trump leads among young people by 49 to 43%. Interestingly, those who use TikTok regularly were the most critical of Biden. So what is happening? One of our Gen Z colleagues has been on the case. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, what Gen Z thinks about Israel and Gaza. I'm Katie Tarrant and I'm a news reporter for The Sunday Times. And you're 62, is that right? <laughs> The wisdom of a 62-year-old, I like to think. Okay, but you're actually, what are you, are you millennial or or are you a Gen Zer? I am actually a Gen Zer. I'm 25, so I'm at the sort of upper end of the Gen Z spectrum. A sort of geriatric Gen (laughs) Zer. Exactly. We're going to be talking about, well, concerns about anti-Semitism and where people your age sit in the debate about what's happening in in Gaza and, and Israel. Interestingly... The sort of latest wave of this started after a big stooshi in some elite American universities. Explain what happened there. As we've seen in the UK, in London, every Saturday, you've had protests on university campuses, which tend to be generally quite pro-Palestinian. And at these protests, again, as you've heard in the UK, there were chants of intifada. Chants of from the river to the sea. Which, you know, some people 
use that phrase in terms of freeing the Palestinian people, but it also can be interpreted as calling for the genocide of the Jewish population of Israel. Hmm. As a result of that, donors for these big universities in the US, Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, MIT, the donors for these universities started writing to the college presidents saying, we're concerned about anti-Semitism on your campuses. What are you going to do about it? After that, Congress got involved and pulled these presidents into a congressional hearing where they were grilled on whether they were doing enough to combat anti-Semitism. And I'm not usually across congressional hearings, to be honest, but I did see a bit of that because there was a specific moment that went somewhat viral. Mm. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? One of those presidents, Liz McGill of the University of Pennsylvania, was asked directly if calling for a genocide of the Jews would violate the university policies. And she said, if it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. A context-dependent decision. Which didn't go down well. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So, is your so after the hearing, she posted an apology video. In that moment, I was focused on our university's longstanding policies aligned with the U.S. Constitution, which say that speech alone is not punishable. I was not focused on, but I should have been, the irrefutable fact that a call for genocide of Jewish people is a call for some of the most terrible violence human beings can perpetrate. But... That was it for her and she had to resign. And the other two also faced calls for their resignations, but their universities backed them. Outside of Congress and elsewhere, there was also a bit of a panic over what some TikTokers were saying about bin Laden. Is that right? Yeah, so there were videos citing a document that Bin Laden had written in 2002. It's called The Letter to America. So I just read A Letter to America and I will never look at life the same. I will never look at this country the same. The Observer published that and it looked like a comment piece on their website. Within this letter, alongside justifying 9-11, Bin Laden speaks about the occupation of Palestine and the need to free Palestinians from their shackles. And some TikTokers found this and shared it. It's literally two pages. Go read a letter to America. And please come back here and just let me know what you think. It explains so much. Ooh, it's a lot. It's a lot. Suddenly this became what looked like a lot of Gen Zers endorsing bin Laden and sort of everything he represents because he'd made this comment about Palestine. In reading the letter, I could only think of this tweet that I saw the other day. Under settler colonialism, any kind of resistance is branded as terrorist because the only acceptable violence is violence by the occupier. I feel like I'm going through like an existential crisis right now, and a lot of people are. Reading this letter, it becomes apparent to me that the actions of 9-11 
and those acts committed against the USA and its people were all just the buildup of our government failing other nations. But the interesting thing about this is actually videos citing the document had been viewed far less than many TikTok posts. So the first user to post about the letter was a TikTok user with only 371 followers. It didn't actually rank among TikTok's top trends. But then a journalist made a compilation of all of the videos and posted it to X. And that sort of caused it to explode. When this journalist shared the video, it was then viewed more than 38 million times. So it's, it's, it's kind of important to get a sense of proportionality when we're discussing what happened with this. And another thing that didn't help was that The Guardian pulled the letter from its website, which accidentally amplified it and brought in the idea of a conspiracy around the letter. Incredible. Uh, so you've got concerns that some Gen Zers are pro-Bin Laden, I can't believe I'm saying that, in the context of this debate. You've got some on university campuses calling for another intifada or you know, using chants of from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which you know many Jews see as a sort of threat of ethnic cleansing. Do we know how representative that is of the Gen Z cohort? It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I feel slightly uncomfortable talking about an entire generation sort of point of view, but, but yeah. we do have polling. There have been several polls over the last couple of months that have suggested that Gen Z are pro-Palestinian. So there was a YouGov poll for the Sunday Times at the start of November. Among the 18 to 24 age group, 37% would say that they sympathise more with the Palestinian side, compared with only 13% who would say the Israeli side. 17% say they sympathise with both sides equally. 34% said that they didn't know. When you look at the over 65s, the numbers are almost exactly the opposite. So you've got 12% would say that they support the Palestinians versus 30% saying they'd sympathise more with the Israelis. But I mean, it's important to remember that the poll also found that just because you felt more strongly about one side doesn't mean that you couldn't sympathise with the other side as well. But then there was a recent poll by this group called More in Common, which was an organisation set up in the aftermath of the murder of Joe Cox MP. That poll in particular looked at what terms Gen Z would use to describe Hamas. Hmm. So 24% said that they would call Hamas freedom fighters and the same proportion would call them terrorists. So, I mean, that just show you that there's a split in opinion. Was the proportion of people saying that Hamas were freedom fighters greater than the same in other generational cohorts? The poll didn't specifically look at this across other age groups, but from, from other research I've seen, yes, this is Gen Z are, tend to be more mm. pro-Palestinian. And it's interesting, isn't it, how many of these things have become slogans, especially on, on marches, whether it's, you know, in the centre of big cities or, or on university campuses. Things like from the river to the sea, many people interpret that in different way. But are we are we sure that some of the people chanting this appreciate that, know necessarily what they're saying in some instances? So, yeah, there's a professor at UC Berkeley called Ron Hasner. He hired a firm to poll 250 students across the US. Now, 86% of those students said that they supported the chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. But when they were asked which river and which sea, 53% of them got it wrong. 
some alternatives to this included answers like the Nile and the Caribbean and, and the Dead Sea, which is a lake. Hasner asked a few other questions as well. So what decade Israelis and Palestinians had signed the Oslo Accords and more than a quarter of the chance supporters claimed that no such peace agreements had ever been signed. He also claims that students changed their mind about from the river to the sea when they were shown a map and told some information about the region. And I do think in my generation's defence, it's not something that's widely taught in schools. And it is a big trait of this generation to want to educate yourself in topics that you don't know about. So I'd say this is probably the best educated generation on the colonisation of African countries, for example. So I think it just really speaks to this idea that when you're getting your clips on TikTok, which are, you know, explaining a little bit about the Balfour Declaration or showing you a map of Israel, are, are they really doing the job that education should be doing? So if that's a kind of broad brush look at what many Gen Zers think about this conflict and this and this knotty issue, there's the, then the question of why. And you've been speaking to some people who have various different theories. What are some of the, the theories that you've heard? Yeah, so I mean, I touched upon it briefly there, but I think theory number one is that Gen Z are predominantly pro-Palestinian because of what they see on TikTok. Mm. The second is that they lean left and the left, at least in the sort of last 20 years, tends to be quite pro-Palestine in, in its sympathies. And the, the third is that it fits into this generational belief framework that Gen Z has, that it's anti-Western imperialism. Mm and the sort of interpretation that this generation has of Israel as an aggressive colonialist state. Coming up, do any of these theories actually hold water? We will hear Katie Tarrant's conversations with some experts. That's in a moment. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So let's get into some of the, the theories that people have given you as to why Gen Zers are maybe more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause than the Israeli side of things. Can we sort of go the, the wrong way around? And, and the, the last one you mentioned, let's start with that. The idea that being pro-Palestinian for Generation Zers fits into a framework of things that they already believe in and it sort of comes as a package. I mean, it's a, well, if I'm a feminist and a sort of anti-racist, it's sort of mm. what goes with that, what the sort of thing that it jigsaws into it is pro-Palestinian. Intersectionality is the word that people use, isn't it? Mm, exactly. So I, I spoke to a contemporary historian called Dr. Martin Farr. Yes, uh, Dr. Martin Farr, Senior Lecturer in Contemporary British History at Newcastle University. The current bunch of students didn't have an attitude towards Palestine. They probably didn't know about it, really, even political students, unless they were studying Middle East politics, which isn't really done at school. They wouldn't have known about this as an issue before 7th of October. And then suddenly they think, well, what is this? Who knew about this? His point of view is that people are driven by sort of very emotive and straightforward issues. And the idea of Britain's role in the founding of Israel and, and the Balfour Declaration as this moment of British colonialism has been shared multiple times on TikTok. Britain has a role in this, particularly with the Balfour Declaration in 1917, Britain encouraging a state in Palestine and then facilitating it after the war and then backing Israel throughout but the motivations then were partly Zionist in the sense of wanting a homeland for the Jews, but also partly anti-Semitic because they wanted them there rather than here. And then after the war, you get the enormous moral cause of the, of the Holocaust, the experience of the Shoah, which not only encourages Jews from Europe to go to Israel, but also facilitates the desire of the West to support the state of Israel. After 67 and the growth of settlements in the West Bank, it clearly is settler colonialism to an extent, but many Israelis and certainly Orthodox Jews would see this as being a biblical inheritance rather than one imposed by Western powers. The Labour Party had historically been quite pro-Israel because it had Israel as, a, as, a, as an idealistic notion in this in this region, democracy, women's rights, kibbutzim, you know, co collective experience and, and sharing things. So the Labour Party had a strong tradition of that, Zionists. Harold Wilson was a Zionist. Um, Conservative Party, curiously, historically tended to have more anti-Semites in it because they tended to associate Israel with Bolshevism and communism. But it switched in the 80s because you had the Cold War and because you had shared enemies and you had us becoming much more aligned with American foreign policy thinking as well. But then he explained that you could trace this shift in opinion to the, the Yom Kippur War in 1973. Students 50 years ago, this was a cause, the 67 war, the six-day war was an enormous cause because both that and the 73 war can be seen as attacks on Israel and Israel defending itself, but can equally be interpreted, at least in its consequences, as, as Israel being a dominating colonial power in the region. And so that started to shift opinion in the 70s and 80s. And in the 70s and 80s, it was crystallised because you had apartheid as an enormously motivating South Africa, enormously motivating factor for many undergraduates. It was for me, actually. And then Palestine became more and more of a cause in the 70s and 80s, particularly with the 82 invasion of Lebanon, 
and Israel being seen as an aggressive power. Israel had gone from being David to being Goliath. By and large, I did, I did a, it's, not, it's very unscientific, but I did ask for a show of hands in the lecture. And one person had pro-Israeli sympathies and everybody else was pro-Palestine, as expected. Because the evidence they have is of Israel as an aggressor and an aggressor supported by the West. They see the footage because the, the, although there's lots of footage of the Hamas attack, there's much more footage because it's been more prolonged of, of Israel's response in Gaza. And that's very emotive. So the ones who are political in the first place, this is reinforcing their views about Palestine is an issue and Western imperialism and anti-Americanism, which mm. a partial view of the conflict would allow them to have, but it is partial. I've been to events, pro-Palestine events, as well, also pro-Israeli events, and the pro-Palestine events, that it's not even mentioned. 7th of October isn't even mentioned. And I think part of this theory as well is that this generation didn't grow up with certain events in living memory. So, for example, Arafat rejecting a peace deal offered to him in 2000 at Camp David or the suicide attacks during the intifadas. And obviously October 7th has happened very much within their living memory. But one poll in America actually found that 18% of adults didn't believe that the October 7th event even happened. So there is also this level of disinformation that's going on that it just depends what they're consuming in terms of what they're going to feel most strongly about. And of course, the, the exposure they had. I mean, when I was when I was studying the Intifada and the and uh, Rabin and the Oslo Accords and Clinton in '93, you, you had you had newspapers uh, and and linear news and nothing else really. So the exposure they have to news is unlimited. But also, they're, yeah. they're not used to legacy news providers and properly edited and curated and commissioned news content. Um, mm -hmm. I've just been sticking to some outside. I mean, it is it is just Instagram and and TikTok. Which that, that wasn't the case five years ago. So it's it's a remarkably transformative. I mean, media always is. There are new platforms. There are new moral panics about them. But the algorithmic dimension to this is not something we would ever have considered in '82 or with the first Intifada. This is a mm. this is a category difference in terms of what this means to observers far away mm. and what type of news coverage can be conveyed. It's interesting, isn't it, that one of the problems, if it is a problem, of TikTok and Instagram Reels and the rest is that you're basically served up things it knows you already like. So it just sends you further down, you know, whatever viewpoint you have. And I guess in this debate, if you've got people who are constantly seeing, I don't know, Black Lives Matter thing, that might immediately then give them sort of pro-Palestinian stuff. And if you're seeing conservative media stuff, you end up then being given pro-Israeli stuff as almost as a default. The videos that make the money are those that are just visceral and emotive and they drive people to feel something. When you feel something, you're going to keep scrolling, you're going to keep engaging mm. with the app. And I guess in that environment, that's where you lose all nuance. Absolutely. And, and there are sort of anti-Semitic tropes that have been allowed to proliferate for years. And so the generation that's been watching this for years and years might have some of these ideas subliminally in mind. Hmm. And and does part of the, the political skew happen because of the number of people of, of different persuasions actually posting on these platforms? Like, is it the case that there are just more people from the pro-Palestinian side of things who use TikTok and Twitter? And that's why you see more of that content on those platforms. The Times spoke to an analyst who 
found that on platforms like TikTok, for every one pro-Israeli video watched, there were 65 pro-Palestinian videos. TikTok is notoriously secretive about their algorithms. But I mean, just being able to see that, you know, hashtag free Palestine was used 39 times more than it was than the hashtags I stand with Israel was used, for example, sort of shows what people are wanting from that app. Hmm. And some people might be hearing this and thinking, this is just people who maybe would have thought these things anyway, posting it to maybe little consequence on the internet. I mean, but do we have a sense of actually how consequential this is? Mm. Well, that's, I mean, that's the one of the most fascinating questions for me. So I spoke with a journalist called David Patrakarakos. I'm David Patrakarakos, and I write for various newspapers in Britain and America. My book, War in 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century, deals with many of the issues that are quite relevant today, I think, especially around Israel and Gaza. His perception on this is actually that the sort of information war, as he calls it, is even more significant than battlefield conflict. I first started covering this in 2014 when I entered Ukraine. What I saw in eastern Ukraine was something that I'd never seen before. I saw, to put it very simply, two wars playing out. One on the ground with tanks and guns and bullets, and the other being fought out online with tweets and posts and shares. And what really struck me at that point, before, I must add, the 2022 all-out invasion of Ukraine by Russia, I saw military operations on the ground supporting information operations online and in cyberspace, which is a reversal of the way things are traditionally in war. Let's not forget propaganda as old as war itself. But I saw essentially a war being carried out for political, not military ends. For information, the primary conduit of wit was social media, especially for younger generations. And the reason that this is so interesting is that what becomes important is how long Israel can justify the use of military action in Gaza. When we strip away all the sound and the noise, any military battle between Hamas and Israel is predetermined before it starts. In the end, Hamas is not going to drive all the Jews into the sea and Israel is not going to be able to wipe out all of Hamas. Israel is a small country. It's a powerful country, but it's a small state it needs international support. It needs some U.S. cover in the uh, Security Council to put its veto in. Now, if Israel cannot justify why it fights, things become very problematic. Hamas knows that it cannot wipe out the Israeli army. So what is its strategy? Its strategy is you go the Israeli army in. And because you cannot brandish so many corpses of Israeli soldiers to the world, you brandish your own corpses of your own Gazan dead. Every single Gazan child, every single Gazan man and woman is a tragedy. But if we're talking about the political calculation here, it's yet more pressure on Israel. The more those bodies are shown to the world, the harder it becomes for Israel. This is the paradoxical logic of strategy in a sense. The more Hamas loses and suffers, the more Gaza is destroyed. Politically, the pressure grows on Israel. And this is vital to Hamas because it's the only leverage in the end that it has. So in a war like Hamas and Israel, where the military outcome is predetermined, this is the way that Hamas can win. And for that, especially when you're talking about the younger generation, platforms like TikTok especially are absolutely critical. And that's where if you have a vocal generation who the sort of videos they're seeing make them very against what Israel is doing, but what it says it's doing to defend itself, that becomes a problem for 
politicians like Biden. Yes. So actually, that pressure from the online world can even exert some kind of influence even on people like President Biden, who I don't think is on TikTok much. No, I, I assume he's probably not. But a, t- a TikToker in themselves doesn't have influence. But when you get large parts of your population who are watching these videos becoming outraged, there is internal pressure, right? Joe Biden will be feeling internal pressure from sections of the American Congress and certainly from, you know, protests and stuff he'll see in the street. So it's not immediate pressure in the way that politicians talk to each other, but it does matter, right? But, you know, in democracies, people are, in the end, as flawed as they are, accountable to their electorates. I speak to IDF people and they understand that the window that they have is, uh, is, is not a long one because of this sort of stuff. Do you see the, the, the sort of two things that we've discussed fueling each other, the nature of social media and the kind of debate that's been happening on university campuses in the UK and, and in the US as well? Is it a sort of cycle that actually strengthens each side? The interesting thing David was saying as well is... But 25 years ago, you'd watch the BBC or you'd read the Sunday Times. Now, you'd watch footage coming out of this conflict that was professionally filmed, curated, edited, reported. There would, you assume, be checks and balances there. Now, that pro-Israeli support, that pro-Palestinian supporter would see the same footage. Now, they might draw their own conclusions from it, but they saw the same thing. So they were at least working from the same reality. If you go onto pro-Israeli accounts and pro-Palestinian accounts, they are light years different. Light years. You are not seeing this war. You are seeing one side of it. And the thing is, if you and I, if we watch the same footage, we can have a conversation. If you see only what you see and I see only what I see, conversation becomes difficult because if we watch the same footage, I say, no, I disagree with this. If we see something totally different, it's like, well, you're a liar. That didn't happen because I've seen it. I've heard it. I've read it. And you're a liar. And it becomes worse. And look, you know, I see people a lot of people denying 7th of October. I've seen people denying that they're Hamas tunnels, even though Hamas talks about them, and even though hostages are kept in the tunnels. And that's very, very dangerous. If we cannot have a conversation from the same reality, if my opponent becomes a liar, uh, a terrorist or or a fascist, then this is obviously very deleterious for the public sphere and for any kind of resolution around these issues. Where do you see this going next, Katie? Does this moment mean that these are views that Gen Z will hold for the rest of their lives? So it's a good question in terms of whether this generation will continue to have these views as they grow older. I mean, when it comes to working out what you think about the world, these are really formative years. But I guess only time will tell. I think what's important to consider as well is it matters what happens in Israel. If Netanyahu were to step down from government or be deposed from government. You know, Netanyahu has seen protests in his own country from his own generation Z. The situation now is that Israel is relying on support from the US, which is waning. And I guess the question is, what happens in 20 or 30 years' time when these people become the majority of voters? How is that going to influence the US's foreign policy and attitudes towards Israel? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Luke Jones, and my guest, Sunday Times news reporter Katie Tarrant. The producer today was James Shield, and the executive producer was Fiona Leach. 
Goodbye.